From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Law enforcement officers see a lot on the job. From car crashes to violence, domestic abuse, shootings, it can take a toll. We'll explore how one county is working to help deputies overcome the stress and trauma. Then Denver's first race riot took place about 150 years ago in Lower Downtown. Back then, it was Chinatown. About 3,000 people congregated quickly in the area, shouting, stamp out the yellow plague. Destruction of the Chinese ghetto ensued. William Wang is the new state historian. During his year as Colorado's history cheerleader, he wants to highlight stories from Chinese immigration to women's suffrage. Plus, what the future may hold for RTD, faced with fewer riders despite front-range growth, and attending the Church of Cannabis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lowe. More police officers die by suicide than from job-related injuries in the United States. From school shootings to child abuse to car crashes, officers are expected to remain calm while responding to gruesome scenes. But the memories can linger and have devastating effects. It's why places like Douglas County, south of Denver, are trying to get ahead of the problem. Detective Dan Bright is wellness coordinator for the Douglas County Sheriff's Office. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Douglas County officers have seen their share of horrific events in the past few years. Most recently, the STEM shooting in Highlands Ranch in May, the shooting death of Deputy Zach Parrish last year. You spent 16 years as an officer in the field. How would you describe what it's like for officers who respond to a violent situation or an accident where people are badly injured? Uh, well, it's um, it's those types of critical incidents that... Um, first responders obviously don't think second about responding to, um, even though you've experienced them several times before and you know it's probably going to cause you some kind of mental anguish, um, they still respond because that's what's in their blood. Uh, but what usually happens is when we show up on scene, you know, we don't have the ability to grieve with the family or um, to show any kind of emotions um, with the witnesses or the victims because we have to maintain a sense of uh, professionalism and uh, remain uh, in control of the scene, you know? Um, so we have to do our job, and uh, we can't let emotions get in the way of that. But then what happens after the call um, typically is those emotions get suppressed um, because then we're going to another call to deal with similar type things. So it's like there's never usually um, a break to just slow down take a breath and process all the trauma that happens. And then what happens in the culture is you get so good at suppressing that, um, that you do it all the time, even in your personal life. And eventually uh, that will catch up to you. It's just a matter of time. So you have to maintain this professional presence on the scene, and mm -hmm. then afterward, there's not necessarily time to grieve. Mm -hmm. And I imagine an officer might feel guilt or regret about how they responded to a particular incident. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, um, you know, even my own experience, you know, you go to DUI crashes where um, where people are killed or, or kids are seriously hurt and you really feel um, feel the pain for that family, um, but you can't express it. Um, you can't um, sit there and grieve with the family. You have to handle the scene and take control of the situation and make sure you know, the people get to the hospital and things are followed up with. Um, but it, yeah, it definitely stays with you for a lifetime. And what I'm hearing is that there's not necessarily an intuitive outlet for those emotions. 
have police departments changed the way officers are trained to prepare emotionally for these kinds of tragic events? We're working on it. It's a slow process. We have, uh, in the first responder culture now, we're starting to be more commonplace to have a peer support team. So it's generally a um, team of people from within their own agency um, that may have experienced uh, similar type tragic incidents. And then they're able to connect with um, people that are struggling and uh, and help them process the trauma, but also help them uh, go to a professional, you know, a professional psychologist to get the help. And we mentioned the STEM shooting earlier. You had officers on the scene. What do you do after an incident like that takes place? Do you swoop in and offer help or do you wait for them to come to you? No, we don't wait. Uh, we swoop in and um, generally after the scene has been handled and processed, we hold um, debriefs after the event. And we just let the first responders know, uh, you know, this is what you're going to be experiencing. Um, you know, you may have lack of sleep. You may have nightmares. Um, you may be unable to sleep. Um, you may become angry or sad. Like all those emotions are normal. So we try to normalize it, saying that, you know, this the way your mind is trying to process the trauma, it's very normal and there's nothing unusual about it and that here are the resources in place to help you. And then what I do uh, as a peer support member is a few days after I follow up with all those individuals to see just check in just to see how they're doing. And if they do need some help, um, that usually sometimes is where we can catch uh, some of the people that um, didn't want to ask for help at the beginning. Um, and then I just continue to follow up with them until I feel they are in a good place. And you got into this line of work as a wellness coordinator because of your own experience on the job just three years ago. Right. Can you explain what happened? Yeah, it was uh, September 2nd of uh, 2016. We uh, were responding to a suicidal subject near Parker Hospital, and that's when I was shot in the chest and uh, ended up dying twice at the hospital. Um, but thankfully, uh, the staff at Parker Hospital saved my life. Um, but the physical pain uh, from that injury doesn't even compare to the mental anguish I had afterwards um, because I was now paralyzed and stuck in a wheelchair. I had a really hard time struggling with that and finding my new identity because um, all I ever knew was the first responder culture because I started it, you know, when I was in my early 20s. Um, and I didn't want to lose that. And so I really struggled with that and uh, to the point of I started having suicidal thoughts myself. But one of the best things that I had in place for me was a really strong support system with my family and a, a wife that refused to um, to let me go down that road. So she was constantly... Um, guiding me down the right path and eventually got me to therapy. And um, now I'm able to to process all the trauma that I've had over all these years as being a law enforcement officer and also the trauma from my own injury. Um, and now I'm a big advocate for speaking up about mental health for first responders because I now understand uh, what that looks like and the kind of struggles that we go through. And so we um, we really try to, to change the culture and whether it be through legislation or through um, trainings or however we can get the word out to the first responder culture. And I wonder, did you ever consider leaving the force? No. No, actually, um, when I was still in the rehab hospital, I I had come to a conclusion that there's no way they're going to allow me to be a cop while still in a wheelchair like that. You just don't ever see that. 
And so I started looking for other jobs outside of that culture, and there was not a single one that I liked or was even remotely interested in. Um, but I'm extremely thankful that the sheriff was able to find a way for me to stay on as a, a deputy. Um, I think that played a huge part in my recovery process because a lot of us that do get injured on the job, we are not ready to let go of the job. Um, we still love it and uh, we still want to be in it. So, and a lot of agencies, unfortunately, do let go of the injured and um, that causes a whole nother realm of mental health issues for those people. But very grateful that the sheriff's office was able to keep me on and then put me into the role of a wellness coordinator. And you mentioned that your wife was a part of your recovery as well, and she's also a law enforcement officer. Do you offer help for families when loved ones experience this kind of on-the-job tragedy? Absolutely. We uh, we kind of teamed up um, and kind of uh, together we helped spread the word to other responders and their families. Um, and, and there's been times where you know, spouses that aren't in law enforcement have a lot of questions and they don't really know anything about the culture. Uh, My wife is trying to connect them to that culture, you know, via a family academy where they can just learn everything about um, what first responders do and what the job is like, because oftentimes they are left in the dark. So we want to educate them on, on what it, what it's like and what to expect. And because oftentimes the spouses are the ones that will raise a red flag when they see something that's not right, as opposed to the first responder themselves. So we depend a lot on the spouses to uh, to help us in, um, in improving mental health and finding the people that do need the help. And how common is it for police departments around the country to have someone like you on staff? Uh, it's not very common, although it, we are moving towards that direction. I think as a nation, it's just, it's a slow process to try and change the still a culture that's been around for so many years. Um, but I think we're, we're finally starting to learn that that does need to happen. And um, I, I know in Colorado, we're very fortunate. You know, we have, there's a few agencies that have a full-time wellness coordinator. And there's a lot that have, uh, it's like a side responsibility, like a, like a patrol officer that has to do patrol, but they're also in charge of wellness. So they can't invest the full-time attention to it, but at least they have something in place, and that's a start. Uh, But we would really love to see every agency having full-time wellness coordinators. Detective Bright, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Detective Dan Bright is the wellness coordinator for the Douglas County Sheriff's Office. Depression, PTSD, and a rash of suicides among officers have led some law enforcement departments to hire a staff member to coordinate mental health services. It has the notorious distinction of being the first race riot in Denver's history. It happened nearly 150 years ago in what was then the city's Chinatown. It's just one moment in time Colorado's new state historian is eager to share. William Way is a professor of history at the University of Colorado. He met me on a busy street corner in Lower Downtown, just across from Coors Field. William, welcome to the program. Thank you. We're standing outside on the street, but tell me what it would have looked like, say, in the 1800s. Well, the original Chinatown began on Wazee Street. And uh, if you go down that street today, you will see that it is an alley. 
it was an alley and was later called Hop Alley uh, because the Chinese were accused of being purveyors of opium. Actually, if the truth be known, there were 17 opium dens in the city, 12 of which were located in uh, Chinatown. But the major customers were Denverites, white folks, uh, who made up the majority of the population. And they would uh, come down to Chinatown to participate in uh, what today we would call drug abuse, uh, that is the smoking of opium, and engage in other recreation uh, in the area, which would include things like gambling and prostitution. And the reason why the Chinese uh, were engaged in these particular activities, they obviously were not alone, is because uh, this was one of the few ways they could make a living. And they were, in effect, forced into fewer and fewer occupations. So this actually brings us to the plaque that we're standing in front of, and I wonder if you could read part of it. Yes, I'd be delighted to do that for you. On October 31st, 1880, in John Asselman's saloon, located on the 1600 block of Wazi, an argument broke out between two pool-playing Chinese and some intoxicated whites. When the Chinese slipped out the back door, they were attacked and beaten, beginning Denver's first recorded race riot. About 3,000 people congregated quickly in the area, shouting, stamp out the yellow plague. Destruction of the Chinese ghetto ensued. Now, there are some other highlights from that event on the plaque. I wonder if you could just explain them to me. Well, uh, if you read this plaque carefully, you notice that it does not actually dwell on the victims of this race riot, the Chinese. Instead, it focuses on the heroes who came to their rescue. Let me say that I applaud the heroes who came to their aid, but it does reflect a certain attitude that persists today. The need for, as it were, benighted, backward people of color to have a white savior. So allow me to read you a part of the plaque. Several white residents showed remarkable courage in protecting the Chinese. Saloon keeper James Veach sheltered refugees as did gambler Jim Moon and Madam Lizzie Preston, whose girls armed themselves with champagne bottles and high heels to hold the mob at bay. Many were injured, and one Chinese man lost his life. Despite 150 claims, totaling over $30,000, no Chinese were ever paid for property or business losses. Nor did this dark day end Denver's struggle with the underlying issues of racial prejudice. And do we know the name of the unnamed victim? Sing Lee. And he worked in a laundry. And unfortunately, he walked out in the midst of the riot. And by virtue of being Chinese, the mob set upon him and beat him to death. And it's striking that his name is still not included, even in a modern plaque remembering the riot. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I certainly understand why that has occurred. Yeah. They're not apt to, um, you know, identify the victims because that would humanize the experience, uh, uh, which I think they should do. Tell me a little bit more about what drew the Chinese to this area. Because they were looking for work. Uh, Many of them were laid off railroad workers. They helped build the western portion of the transcontinental railroad. 
the Central Pacific. And after it was completed, they were in effect dumped on the Western labor market. Ultimately, uh, the Chinese were employed uh, mainly in the mining industry. In a moment, we're going to move to the Colorado capital, where a Chinese man from that era holds a special place of honor. But I want to ask first, you're a professor of history at CU. You'll serve as the state historian for a year. What are the key points or issues you hope Coloradans will know more about when you're done? Well, there are a number of things that I would like to focus on. One of them is to talk more about uh, the minority, if you will, communities uh, in the state. They have been oftentimes uh, overlooked, uh, misunderstood, and the facts about them have been distorted. This would include not just Asians, but Hispanics, Native Americans, and others as well. A second thing that I would like to do is promote the study of history. We live in an age in which history, as well as other disciplines associated with the humanities, have been, well, downgraded, and students have been encouraged to ignore it. So we need to get out and defend our discipline, the discipline of history, to tell people it continues to be relevant to them and to everyone else. Because you can't really know who you are unless you have an understanding of your past. We moved from that spot to the Colorado State Capitol a few blocks east. There, in the old Supreme Court chambers, stained glass windows line the room. They memorialize some of Colorado's most prominent citizens, including another Chinese immigrant. Chinlin Su is considered a pioneer. He was uh, considered uh, the mayor of Chinatown. It was an honorific that was given to the one individual in the community who could speak English as well as Chinese and serve as an intermediary between the mainstream community and the Chinese community. He had come from uh, southern China, worked on the railroad, settled in Colorado. He uh, worked primarily as a labor contractor, and hence the heritage window is honoring him as a, a labor contractor. But you might find this interesting. He was also called a white Chinaman, which at the time, I guess, was considered a compliment, and that he had presumably all of the virtues of the Yankee pioneer. He was tall, he was tough, and he knew how to get things done. Hmm. You're of Chinese descent yourself. Why are these stories of Asians particularly compelling for you to tell as a state historian? One of the reasons why I'm interested in Asians in Colorado is an extension of my interest in Asian Americans in general. And since I was in Colorado, why not write about the Chinese, the Japanese, and other Asians in the state? It is, in a sense, my responsibility to do so. Let's talk about some other aspects of the state's history, an example maybe of something that sets Colorado apart and makes it different from other states. Yes, let me mention one thing, and that's the fact that we had, as a state, not as a territory, but as a state, passed legislation to give women the right to vote. And we did this 
through a popular referendum. And we did this early on, years before the passage of the 19th Amendment. What makes the popular referendum important is that it was uh, the men who passed it. It was the men. It's also good to know that almost half of the people in the current Colorado legislature are women. And that's more than ever before. The Colorado House of Representatives is one of only two legislative chambers in the country where females hold a majority. Yes. So you're a state historian at an interesting time, this era of (laughs) cell phones and social media and short attention spans. How can you make history compelling to people? Well, I'm rather old school when it comes to history. And I believe if you can tell the stories of Colorado, you will attract an audience. You will hold their attention. The difference is is that as a historian, we then take those stories and we imbue them with significance because that's our job, right? We interact with the facts of the past. We reconstruct that history. And then we try to understand why it's significant What meaning does it have for us today? What implications does it have for the future? Leave us with one other story about Colorado's history or a piece of trivia that you find particularly entertaining. (laughs) A piece of trivia? Well, uh, let me me point to one story that I rather like. In uh, 1914, an electrician named David Sturgeon tried to cheer up his son by dipping lights in colored paint and hanged them from the son's window. The son was bedridden and he could see these lights and it would cheer him up. And after he did that and others in his neighborhood and others in the city, they saw that and they said, wow, that's pretty neat. And ever since then, people have been, well, decorating their outdoors with uh, Christmas lights because of what David Sturgeon had done. And in sharing the story, we tell them about Colorado and how we've, in a sense, impacted the general society, right? Because now everyone has Christmas lights. This is quite terrific, quite terrific. That is charming. William, thank you for guiding us around some of Colorado's history. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. William Way began his year as Colorado's state historian on the state's birthday, August 1st. In that role, he's charged with reaching out to the public to share the state's past and its relevance today. Way is a history professor at CU Boulder. RTD's ridership has fallen 5% over the last few years, even as more people move to the area where the transit agency serves. CPR's transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner wanted to know why and what RTD plans to do about it. Downtown Denver on a weekday morning. It's the easiest, most convenient destination if you're traveling by RTD's buses or trains. And yet more than three out of every 10 commuters here drive to work. And uh, why did you drive today? Because they give us parking. (laughs) And it's easy. Honestly, I've got two dogs, so getting home in the afternoon is pretty important. We have really bad public transportation in Brighton, so I just normally drive because if I want to take the bus, I have to go all the way to Westminster in order to catch a bus. Um, I've considered taking the train. I live actually next to the G-Line. It's just sometimes I have to leave work and go places for my job, so it's kind of hard if I have to leave because I won't have a car. Why don't you take the bus today? 
it's not as convenient. I wouldn't get, I wouldn't be able to meet all my schedules. I've got several places to go today. First to my office, then I've got to go and over in the uh, Santa Fe area, and then I'll, I've got to do some shopping. Then I'm going to go to the mountains. Big day. Big day. That was Jim Bunch of Denver, as well as Lee Vadis of Wheat Ridge, A.J. Winter of Brighton, and Joy Lohman of Wheat Ridge. RTD's own survey of non-riders matches what people told us. A lot of people prefer their car because it's easier. And RTD's challenges are even more pronounced outside of downtown. Across the metro area, census data shows that three-quarters of people drive alone to work. And that makes sense. The suburbs and mountain towns in RTD's coverage zone were developed for the car. Transit expert Jarrett Walker says that makes it really hard for RTD to serve all of those places. The way a community is laid out is going to have an overwhelming impact on what transit can achieve there, and therefore on whether intensive transit in that area is going to be a good investment. Walker spoke to the RTD board last month, and he presented them with a tough choice. Option one, run buses more often in dense places where transit use is already high. If RTD did that, ridership would likely go up because it would become more convenient. But RTD would likely have to cut some less popular suburban routes as a result. And that can be very controversial. Walker helped the transit agency in Houston, Texas, focus on ridership a few years ago. They cut a number of bus lines. The public hearings were horrible, absolutely horrible. They went till midnight every night for about five days. And the board went ahead, um, and in the end, Houston is now the only uh, major Texas city where ridership is stable or rising, and just one of four nationally. The more popular a bus route is, the less RTD has to subsidize it with sales tax revenue. And RTD's budget is in a tight spot. It doesn't have the cash to finish some big promise projects. The other option, option two, focus on coverage. That would mean more buses across the entire district, but less often. Walker says ridership likely wouldn't go up, but service would be more equitable and accessible to everyone. You have to choose between competing things that you like, and both is not an acceptable answer. RTD is trying to plot out its future, and the question of ridership versus coverage is one of the biggest it'll have to answer. CPR News spoke to each of RTD's 15 board members, and most said they feel an obligation to maintain a basic level of service everywhere. And I am concerned that we will not have that, and my constituents pay the same amount of sales and use taxes as anybody else in the Metroplex. That's Troy Whitmore, whose district covers Adams County, northwest of Denver. But others, like Kate Williams from Denver, say that RTD should be about moving people, not buses. I see no point in having a bus and a driver and fuel and and air quality, etc., moving on a route that, that has three riders on it. The board will chew over the question as part of their Reimagine RTD process, a two-year-long public discussion about the agency's future. The board is set to take up the topic again at a meeting tonight. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. And Nathaniel is here to continue the discussion. Welcome. Hey, Avery. One of the pushbacks I hear when it comes to convenience is that buses get stuck in the same congestion as cars. So taking the bus doesn't save any time and can be just as irritating when it's in stop-and-go traffic. Have any other cities actually proven that more transit ridership can actually make car traffic move better, too? 
Let's look at Seattle. It's a city that's a little bit bigger than Denver, but it's pretty similar in terms of population. And they've both made big investments in passenger rail. There's one big difference I want to focus on, though. Denver built its trains in cheaper right-of-way, so out near freeways and existing freight rail lines. And it's really meant to get people from the suburbs into the city. And so on these rail lines, you see a lot of parking rides out in the suburbs by these train stations. In Seattle, they took a much different approach. They built rail lines in densely populated places. It was more expensive dollar-wise, but they've seen these big ridership jumps uh, on their new lines where Denver hasn't. Um, If you look at the R line in Aurora that parallels Interstate 225, that has been really disappointing so far in terms of ridership. Um, So Seattle put a ton of money into new bus lines as well. And the end result is that vehicle traffic in Seattle has actually gone down 5% in the last decade or so. Of course, getting people out of street traffic is one reason the passenger rail system is being built out. But even so, I see light rail train cars empty quite a lot. Why do you think that is? So like I said, our passenger rail system is really meant to get commuters into the city for work. They're mostly pretty full in the morning. On some of the lines, you'll see two-way traffic where there's destination on either end, like the new G-Line stop in Old Town, Arvada. But otherwise, yeah, you'll see empty trains because those trains don't necessarily go where people want to go on like a summer weekend. So like the W line, it goes to Golden, but it doesn't go all the way to downtown Golden where people actually hang out on the weekends. In the long run, RTD is hoping that more development really sprouts up around these stops, and that could help with ridership. You mentioned in your story that RTD needs funding to continue expansion projects. I wonder how it estimates how many people are riding rail for free since passengers don't have to go through a turnstile with a ticket that they prove that they paid. On commuter rail lines like the A-Line to the airport, there are security guards on those trains, and they check people all the time. So evasion rates are super low, like under a tenth of a percent. Light rail is a little different. RTD isn't required to staff those trains with security, so they don't. They do these spot checks. Evasion rate is higher there, but it's still low. It's like 2%. So they could have higher security, but RTD just thinks it's not worth the extra cost. Why doesn't RTD have turnstiles? There's a few spots with them, like the Mile High Stadium stop, but they, they aren't used anymore. Um, really, the stations are on city sidewalks a lot of times, so you really can't set up a barrier there. And RTD just doesn't think it'd be worth it to the tens of millions of dollars it would take to build all this infrastructure for turnstiles. They don't think it would pay off. And one of the reasons for mass transit isn't just to ease congestion, it's to improve air quality. Where does RTD stand on clean energy technology with its buses? So they just got some grant money to buy more electric buses. Uh, They do have a small fleet of them already downtown on the 16th Street Mall. But the vast majority of RTD's buses are still diesel. And I've not heard RTD talk about making a full transition to electric anytime soon. And the other thing is buses last so long that if they were to transition to electric, it would take years. You mentioned Houston, Texas in your story as an example of where they've been able to increase ridership. What is Houston doing to get people to embrace mass transit? So they completely redesigned their system. Buses used to mostly just get people downtown. And now they kind of crisscross the city in a grid pattern. And that can mean more transfers. But because they run more frequently now, it doesn't really matter that much. Nathaniel, thanks for your insights on this issue. Yeah, you're welcome. CPR reporter Nathaniel Miner covers transportation issues in Colorado. We've been talking about challenges facing RTD with ridership down 5% along the Front Range, even as more people move into RTD's service area. (laughs) 
open space is coveted territory for hikers and mountain bikers. So where did the idea come from to protect local trails and views in the first place? That's the latest question in our series, Colorado Wonders. CPR's environment reporter Grace Hood gets the answer. In the three years since E.J. Hassenfratz moved here, he's embraced Colorado's outdoors, camping with his wife and elderly pug, hiking rugged trails, and running five times a week on open space near Stanley Lake in Westminster. It's really important, especially with all the development you can see here out in the distance. I just always wondered what the, the history of locally designated open spaces were. First off, what exactly is open space? It gets created when cities or counties tax themselves to buy, manage, and maintain land. The wild-looking places never get developed. No baseball diamonds, no jungle gyms. Local governments have protected wild or scenic lands here and there for more than a century. But the notion of a more ambitious approach emerged in Boulder 60 years ago. That's when residents overwhelmingly voted to forbid pumping water to new homes above a certain elevation to slow development. From the very beginning, everybody realized that that was a stopgap measure. Ruth Wright is a retired lawyer and state legislator. Back in the 1960s, she was a mom raising young kids in Boulder. Just as the environmental movement was taking off, Wright began wondering what that meant in her world. She worried about mountain habitat becoming fragmented as more people moved in. So she and others got an open space tax on the ballot. And I took the job seriously. I realized, as we all did, that Boulder was growing at an enormous rate. And so there was this in-migration of people. And we didn't want to stop the in-migration, but we certainly wanted to protect what we had. In 1967, Boulder became the first city in the country to tax itself so it could buy open space. Jefferson County followed five years later. Then other places, like Westminster, got on board. In the 1980s, state leaders got worried about protecting natural areas. Sydney Macy was leader of the Nature Conservancy for Colorado back then. She says the State Department of Natural Resources wanted to get involved. It was really Governor Romer and, at the time, his DNR director, Ken Salazar, who started to say, you know, we need to look at a dedicated source of revenue for the state of Colorado. The state had extremely limited funds to acquire land for state parks. But there was one pot of money that had promise. Charlie, can you check to make sure the winner bell is working properly? <laughs> Play the new Monopoly Scratch game and win up to $100,000 instantly. How many people live in Colorado? In the 1980s, Colorado lottery dollars poured into state park projects like campgrounds. But a lot of the money also paid for new CU buildings and other construction. In 1992, Macy and others asked voters to put more of that money toward open space. It created the Great Outdoors, or GOCO, trust fund. We don't want to look like, you know, San Francisco to San Jose in the Bay Area or probably you name it in Los Angeles. People didn't want to see that. GOCO spurred a second wave of cities and counties to create open space programs. It did this with the promise of matching local dollars with state ones for land purchases. One of the crowning achievements came in the early 2000s with a 21,000-acre purchase of the Greenland Ranch on the Southern Front Range. It's huge. 
and it spans eight miles of I-25. But Sidney Macy worries massive efforts to protect land are lost on most Coloradans. I know a lot of people who drive through that and don't really even notice it. GOCO is in the middle of a multi-million dollar campaign to get kids and adults outdoors more often. In Boulder, open space is still going strong, and it's had unintended consequences. A lot of land is tied up in town, making housing expensive. And the trails are more popular than ever. Last year, six million people visited city trails, more than Rocky Mountain National Park, all results of an experiment that started 60 years ago. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. When it comes to cannabis, Colorado is a pioneering state. That's why CPR News created the podcast On Something, about life after legalization. Host Anne-Maria Wad recently explored the spiritual relationship people have with cannabis. Using marijuana as a way to meditate or even worship isn't new. Rastafarians have been using it as a sacrament and as a medicine for nearly a century. But Anne-Marie found a contemporary twist to the Church of Cannabis. Here's a highlight from the On Something podcast episode, Puff, Puff, Pray. So what people like to do is, it's probably the one ritual we have here, is uh, if you do have a joint you haven't lit yet, or if you want to put out and relight a joint, come up right here and light it off the candle, um, share it with your friends, Share it with new strangers. Talk to people. This is a recording of a recent service at the International Church of Cannabis here in Denver. And at this church, elevationists, as they call themselves, gather every week. We share the cannabis sacrament. There is a prayer or a meditation that's read out before we have a ritual lighting of a candle. Lee Malloy is one of the founders of the Church of Cannabis. Sometimes he's the one behind the pulpit guiding the meditation. We give thanks to the original energy of creation. We light this candle to celebrate our freedom to elevate and remember those not at liberty to join us. We support each other on our individual spiritual journey and welcome all as family in love and in peace to burn their sacrament with us today. So let's elevate. That's right. In this particular house of worship, that's another way of saying let's light it up. But to Lee, it's not as simple as that. Lighting up in this church is symbolically and ritualistically powerful. You look at the idea of Prometheus who stole the fire from the gods. It's when you get the fire that we can gather around it. You know, we can cook food, we can stop moving. And as a species, humanity was able to stop running and start talking, communicating, start growing. Other than this one ritual, the Elevationist Church doesn't really have a specific theology or a set of sacred traditions. They don't worship a specific deity. They don't really make any rules for their followers. For Lee, the faith seems defined more by what it is not. For example, it's not like the religion of his youth. I was raised as an evangelical Christian, uh, and I went to... uh, you know, Sunday schools and church every week, two or three times a week, actually. Really? Yeah. So how do you get from there to being the co-founder of the International Church of Cannabis? What's your What's your journey like? Long, arduous, tiring for the most part. Uh, I gave up my belief, trust, if you will, in organized religion around the age of 15, uh, just after the Live Aid concert. 
which took place in 1985. Live Aid was this massive benefit concert held simultaneously in London and Philadelphia. It was called the Global Jukebox, two concerts running simultaneously, organized by Bob Geldof and headlined by Elton John, David Bowie, Run DMC, Queen, the Beach Boys, along with tons of other big name artists. The whole point was to raise money to combat hunger in Ethiopia. The country was, at the time, in the grips of the worst famine in a century which ultimately killed 1.2 million people. It was a huge event. It was still to this day the largest uh, show ever put on. So you were there? I wasn't there. I watched it live on television. It was part of, you know, my youth. It was very important to me to donate absolutely everything I had to it. And then to be told the next day in church that uh, what those starving people needed was not pop music, but, you know, prayer and Jesus. And I just thought, you're an idiot. How do you know that Bob Geldof, who organized the event, wasn't sent by God in the first place? Lee told me his pastors also expressed similar sentiments during the AIDS epidemic, saying that victims had brought the disease on themselves. He grew so disillusioned, he left the church. Then he set out in search of something that would resonate with him. He dabbled in Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, but nothing quite fit. How how do you go from trying out all of those things to coming to elevationism? I I think that uh, as a young person, I uh, start exploring and you know looking at different things and one of those things you know drugs and whatever, uh, and finding that by using cannabis and like by really thinking about the use of it, you can really like. Uh, meditate on specific ideas you can allow if you can concentrate and ritualize your thinking you can really allow yourself to go to new places and i think that's very important he started to look at this ritualized cannabis use as a sort of spiritual practice as opposed to what we would call a recreational experience i guess more meditating less binge watching tv you get it So how does somebody build a brick-and-mortar church around this ritualized way of smoking weed? Well, it's sort of a chicken-and-egg thing, really. Lee's friend and eventual co-founder had a church building just sort of lying around, technically. The former St. Paul's Lutheran Church, empty and slated to be turned into apartments. Lee and his friends spent more time in this church— Smoking weed in this grand space and grand plans started to take shape. Everyone had a different background and realized that while we were sitting there using this cannabis that was bringing us together as a community, and the idea of a community I think is quite important. And it just felt important at the time that we could have a community of, you know, spiritually minded, good people that performed the functions of a church, but did it in their own way, you know, and so why not? So they were able to save the church from an afterlife of apartment purgatory, and then they set to work transforming the old building into a psychedelic destination. But it's more than just that. Lee says his church serves the community in the same way that many traditional churches do. 
we have like you know people going out in the community volunteering uh, with the homeless you know we have others you know the sort of things you find up we're, we're pretty much like most churches if you've heard of with just a little less dogma and a bit more wheat but to be honest that's not the only difference there are these rainbow kaleidoscopic floor-to-ceiling murals decorating the main worship area of the church and downstairs, like lots of other churches, there's sort of a cafeteria-slash-meeting area. Except this one has lots and lots of toys and arcade games. Instead of folding tables and metal chairs, there's wacky furniture. At some point, I was sitting in a yellow chair shaped like a hand. And there's also neon signs on the walls. To be honest, it looks like a great place to smoke weed. What makes this different from any other private pot club? Well, I think we've just spent the last 45 minutes establishing that. But, but like, uh, short uh, answer. Well, the short answer is it's an offensive question. Really? Yeah, I mean, I've just gone very clearly through how this is a real church for people, how people use this as their community church, how it is a faith-based organization, how we're a real 501c3 religious organization. And I don't really feel I need to explain myself any further about that. This isn't a pot club. You want to smoke pot? Go home. I don't care. I am not the first person to ask Lee something like this, as I'm sure you can tell. And try to think of it from his point of view. The law does recognize the International Church of Cannabis as an actual church. But it's bigger than that. Lee is adamant that his right to elevate is protected under the First Amendment. So confident, in fact, that when the doors first opened on 4-20-2017, Lee had never once consulted a lawyer. And there's a good reason for that for me, which is that uh, I already have the constitutional right to do this. It's right there at the top of that constitution. I don't need a lawyer to tell me that. And just a reminder here, the First Amendment says, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So we started a 501c3 religious organization, and we did it. We claimed it, and we made it happen. But was it legal? Yes and no. In Colorado, you can't have open and public consumption of weed. And in their first celebration at the church for 2017, there were eight undercover Denver cops in attendance. Later on in court, the cops would argue that if they could get in, the event wasn't private enough. One church leader was hit with a whopping $50 fine plus $21 in court costs. So even though weed is legal in Colorado and the church is considered an actual church, they still have to operate like a private club. And Maria Wad and a highlight of the On Something podcast episode, Puff Puff Pray. You can listen to the entire episode and other episodes of On Something at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally today, new music from Kyle Emerson. The Denver indie rocker's sound is self-described as both dreamy and driving, classic and contemporary. His sophomore album, Only Coming Down, is due out this fall. Recently, we met him down in Denver's art district on Santa Fe to record a special session, including the song, May You Find Peace. Won't you break me down hold me under
Kyle Emerson with May You Find Peace. To see video of Emerson's performance at Dime Denver, go to CPR.org. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Will. Call it-